This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the essayist Barbara Ehrenreich about her new book, Natural Causes. The book, Barbara, strikes me as your report and reflections on our American fear of death. And you present your arguments and your observations, lessons of your own experience, and maybe you can begin by telling us how you come by the subject of this book. The first thing was close observation of people in my sort of demographic uh, people who were middle, educated middle-class people who were middle-aged or older. And I began to feel that there was something strange going on with them uh, some years ago when I noticed more and more of my friends, very smart people, often politically active and so on, getting further and further into the subject of their own bodies and their own possibilities of lengthening their lives through controlling what they eat or how much they exercise or obeying the um, medical rules about preventive medicine that is supposed to save you and add years to your life. And I did not share this obsession, I will admit. Um, it seems to me I'll eat things I like, and I'll, I, I'll, I exercise because I like it. Uh, and as for the preventive medical care, well, in the last 10 or 15 years, I began to give up on that. Just began, stopped doing it. And I'm talking about all the tests and screenings and doctor's visits you're expected to submit to once you get, say, over 50 or even over, over 40. And I noticed that they were piling them on, things I had never heard of, like bone density scans. And it's in my nature to question everything. So in each case, with each new test or screening they wanted uh, me to go through, I would, I would do some research and try to find out if this indeed did any good. And what I mean by that is not something subjective on my part, but looking into what the more statistically and mathematically oriented um, medical people were saying about the particular test. If they say that something is actually good for the public health, you'd have to show that in large numbers of people where the test is done, people live longer than people who do not get, you know, another larger group of people who don't get that test done. And we're beginning to have that data more and more for more kinds of tests. So at first I was more compliant. I, I went through the bone density scan because my primary care physician was begging me to. And it turned out I have a problem. 
I suffer from osteopenia, which means that the bones are thinning and are more fragile than they used to be. Now, actually, this is true for most women who are past menopause. So I don't consider that a disease. I consider that just a part of aging. Go back when you say a disease. I mean, when when did we start thinking about death as a disease? <laughs> well, osteopenia uh, as a disease. That was um, actually something more or less invented by Merck, the pharmaceutical company, uh, which developed what they said would be a cure for low bone density. Unfortunately, that, uh, you know, you look into that uh, cure a little more, look at their drugs, and it has a lot of, lot of bad effects, like increasing the possibility of bone fractures in, in many people. So that, that's kind of, I thought, well, what is this? Why did I bother doing this test? Only I, to find out I have something that women my age almost always have, and that there is no respectable cure for. So from that, it went one thing after another. I just began to suspect them all. What you call a wellness industry is an enormous business in this country. I mean, many billions of dollars. I mean, this has been happening over the last, what, 20 or 30 years, right? I mean, we spent something like $3 trillion a year on on. on Healthcare of various forms, right? Yes, we do. Uh, and I would say that that spending is skewed in a questionable way toward those people who have insurance, which means once you're 65, uh, pretty much all of us, we've Medicare, and then we become a big, you know, source of profits. So that's, yeah. But wellness isn't just about health care. Health care is the old-fashioned kind of thing of going to a doctor's office and, you know, having procedures performed on you and so on. Wellness is something else. <laughs> wellness is for rich. Wellness is for rich and means spending time well at luxury wellness spas around the world where you may chant and meditate and have hot stones placed on different parts of your body. I, I, I don't ask me to explain what these things do. Um, and wellness is um, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, with her business called Goop, which you know, which sells extremely expensive uh, things to apply to your skin or diets to follow and so on. We don't have any evidence that this stuff works, do we? Oh, no. No, no. But it's about, it's about loving yourself. You know, the more things you can do that show how much you love yourself, uh, the better. And if they're expensive, well, that just shows how much more you love yourself. You can really spend full time doing these various modalities of wellness. But it goes a it goes along with with, with the, what Christopher Lash called in in the eighties the culture of narcissism, right? I mean, this is we we live in a very narcissistic society, do we not? 
Yes, especially among the wealthy. I mean, narcissism is much more a disease of the wealthy, if it's a disease at all. But, yeah, no, Christopher Lash uh, in the 70s said that a whole generation, I guess my generation, was retreating from politics because we had failed in the 60s to change things fundamentally. So um, now we were just turning inward uh, to our to our own selves, our own bodies, uh, and our minds, or better yet, our own mind bodies, as we now so, I mean, uh, it's a, call them. I think you say somewhere that the feeling that we had no control in a political arena, that we, we couldn't, that our democracy uh, wasn't working, but maybe we could have control of our own bodies. Yep, and it's not just our democracy or politics, uh, it's also our jobs. You know, the, the, there there is no great security for middle level managerial people. Everything is has changed. So, I you know I understand this myself. I know I can't do anything uh, that I can think of anyway about Donald Trump and what he's about to do next. But when I go to the gym, I can work on my quadriceps. And I have some control there. You know, I, I know this feeling. And, yeah, you just shrink your concerns to the perimeter of your own physical self. And, yeah, you can, you can get somewhere a little bit. That's what you call in a chapter called crushing the body, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's not my, my term. That's. It's not enough to, to have a good workout. You have to crush your body. And at my gym, they've added a new course called Shredding Your Body. This is really, really a, violent, a violently aggressive form of control directed at your body. To what end? I mean, what, what's the... Why? Longevity. But we have no, we have no evidence that that produces longevity, do we? some evidence that exercise helps, um, that, it can ex- that it seems to extend longevity. But um, what kind of exercise exactly? How much? And then some of the other things people are doing, like this fanatical concern with what you put in your mouth, you know, about what you eat. Most of that is, is not evidence-based in any way. In the 90s, the big thing was not to eat fat. Yeah. Remember when Shane Brody in the New York Times was telling us that fat was poison and we should just eat carbs? Well, that seems to have resulted in the uh, obesity epidemic because people switched from their normal diets to eating lots of fat-free chocolate chip cookies. Tell us about the chapter called Cellular Treason. The discovery that uh, the body maybe has ideas of its own and cannot uh, is not a subject of, of our discipline. Yeah, well, this is it. Just underlines how little control we have. The idea has been that, yeah, if you think the right thoughts and eat the right foods and so on. You can totally control 
what goes on in your physical body. But then we look at certain kinds of ailments, and, and what they show is a complete lack of control, or, or our lack of control so far. I would hope we would get further, but like um, the, cell, the body is made up of cells. Cells are the smallest living unit of the body. The old picture of cells was like, it was that they were like citizens of a communist dictatorship. They were happily doing their job for the collective. They were, they cared nothing for themselves. They were completely obedient. Well, that's not um, what it really looks like. Cancer, for example, is a rebellion by a cell, beginning with one cell usually, that decides, Anna, I don't want to keep doing my job here. I want to run, I want to rampage throughout the body and reproduce and set up new colonies of my own clones. And then you've got cancer. Um, autoimmune diseases are diseases in which immune cells, which we would think are our defenders, decide they're going to attack some organ of the body or some other part of the body. And they, they do it. You know, they have no concern for the whole organism. So you, you get, if you, if more you look into it, you, the less you see the body as a complete harmonious whole. And the more you see it as a uh, battleground. You started your life, if I remember, as a Ph.D. graduate in cell biology. So you began to understand cells, particularly one that you refer to as the macrophage. I want you to talk about the macrophage because this discovery that cells have agency, if not necessarily consciousness, came to you as a big surprise. Oh, it really did. Shocking surprise. It was in about 2009, and I read in Scientific American about the then still recent discovery that macrophages assist tumors in their, you know, war against the rest of the body. It had been known for a long time that macrophages gather around tumors, Macrophages are the immune cells that are at the front lines, say, when microbes invade your bloodstream. They're very good fighters. Their name macrophage means big eaters in Greek. Because they, they kill by engulfing and eating uh, their quarry. So I, when I studied macrophages, we didn't know anything bad about them. Uh, I thought they were heroes in the in the battle against um, microbes. So it was a shock to see that they are in fact enabling the spread of cancer around the body. I, I, for me, that just seemed to change everything I had assumed about biology. So the, I mean, that is cellular treason. I mean, they they have agency but not consciousness. Explain that, because I think people might get confused. Yeah, it is confusing, and it's all new. I, I would say this is, you know, talking about very recent, last, say, decade or so research. Um, 
Mastophages are interesting because they are very mobile cells. They don't just move around because the blood carries them around. They can decide, they can kind of go places. Uh, and they can attack, you know, cells of your body that they deem to be unhealthy, or they can attack any cell. And how, why do they do that when it, in the end it will mean death for them, too, if the whole body dies? Well, what <laughs> cell biologists are saying now is that they make decisions. That they, that doesn't mean that they're conscious of, obviously. They don't have any nervous system or anything. It's one cell. But they have choices to make. Like whether to attack another cell and where to move to next. And they make those choices somehow on the basis of incoming chemical signals. And God knows what. But that is to say they have agency. They can, they can do things that can cause changes in, the, in their environment. I mean, we wouldn't be far wrong in, in making an analogy between a macrophage and Donald Trump. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's something there. Uh, <laughs> the analogy that's usually made you know, for the immune system in general, is it's, it's like a garrison of soldiers that you have in your town to protect the town, right? But that garrison can also, you know, get drunk and decide to rape and pillage in the town. So when you have killer cells like macrophages, uh, they... There's a risk in that. What does the notion of cells acting on their own do to our idea of the self? You have a chapter called The Invention of the Self. Talk about that, Barbara, and talk about that in terms of of, uh, narcissism and who is in charge of our body and, and where or what is the self. Well, you know, it, it kind of shakes you up to think that your body is made is made up of these little tiny, tiny microscopic things that can have their own agendas, if we want to use that word for them. So, so what am I? Uh, I mean, me, Barbara. Uh, if but uh, this conglomeration or collection or nation of different cells with possibly different ideas about what they want to do. That, that is shocking right there. Um, the whole wellness idea is one of harmony, but that's not see, uh, exactly how it works. Where do we get the idea of the self? It's about 400 years old. You don't, you don't find it in anything like a modern form much earlier. Certainly, you get big egos, for example, in um, the Iliad, uh, in the ancient world. But the notion of a particular self that you have that is different from all other people's and is sort of locked up in its own uh, carapace, separating you from other people, that really 
you know, that that goes back no further than the Enlightenment. And in some ways it was a replacement for the idea of the soul, a, a secular version of the soul. Right, I mean, it, 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 the ancients, the Greeks, the Romans, they have no notion of either a soul or a self. And a, but we get with the Christian and in the Islam also the, the notion of a soul. You know, the soul persists, but it has been pretty much displaced by the self. You know, so the self is a secular version of the soul. It's not guaranteed eternal life like the soul is uh, in a lot of Christian thought anyway. And so it's, it's, um, it is a, it's a, it's a construct. The more you think about it, the more complicated it gets or the more confusing it gets. Like we are enjoined in our culture today to love ourselves. You'll find it. I've, I have to read a lot of pop culture to do this book, as well as a lot of science and history. But we are told to love ourselves. Now think about that. Who's doing the loving? And who is to be loved? How do we split ourselves in such a way? Uh, in, in fact, you could say the love of self is the major replacement for religion in our in our culture. Yeah, I mean, both the love of God and the love of self require belief in an abstraction. An abstraction, the existence of which cannot be established in any objective way, of course. Yes, we have no scientific evidence for the self or the soul. Right. I even found an article, uh, I mean, on the web, uh, a website urging you to worship yourself, which is an interesting proposition. But there, there you have the self clearly taking the place of the deity, a deity. Well, I don't like to make the analogy again, but there's another analogy to Trump. You seem to be... I mean, worshiping, worshiping the self. Oh, yes. No, the, you know, one of the things I want to go on to to study more is narcissism. Uh, what is that about? What what's its what was its evolutionary role, if we can say that? And why are we so narcissistic? Yes. No. That it strikes me that the society at present is fairly deeply into the pool of narcissists at the moment. Right. Right. Let's go to chapter your. Your last chapter, Killing the Self, Rejoicing in a Living World. This is your way of, of successful aging, learning that the self is not that important. Well, there's a very interesting point made in um, David Reef's book about his mother's death, Susan Sontag's death. Yeah. And Reef recalls that in her journal, Susan Sontag had written, the only way to face death is to get rid of the I, that is the self. But as Reeves says, she never could do that herself. And tragically, I think, up to the very end of her life, 
she was pursuing ever more exotic um, procedures that might forestall the cancer that was killing her. So I would not call that a good death, a totally medicalized, hospitalized, uh, machine-dominated death. And the, the point is that if you can kind of get over yourself, as they say today, if you can see that you're going, well, let me, let, let me put this in the first person. It sounds less hostile. My departure from the world is in many ways no big deal. The things that are important to me will be carried on by other people, unless, of course, the world is blown up before they get a chance to. Uh, You know, there's a, a lot going on, not only among other people who will survive me, Uh, But also what I argue in the book, too, that there is, um, if there is agency in cells, there is also agency in even tinier things. Uh, This has been proposed for viruses, for example, that they, too, can make choices. So we're surrounded not by a dead world, but a world that is constantly in flux that is in some sense living. It is a not inert as the scientists have always imagined. And that that's okay, that's great. I like that. I see a lot of things happening in the world and they'll keep happening just fine without me. I like that idea too. I mean, I'm, I'm, more and more these days I'm tending toward what used to be called animism or pantheism. The uh, <laughs> I remember there's a wonderful passage in one of Aldous Huxley's book where he's sitting in a cafe in Vienna and he's eating a piece of Wiener schnitzel. And he thinks about it and it occurs to him that he's probably eating Mozart because, <laughs> because Mozart dies and is buried somewhere in a field and decomposes and then grass comes up and the cows eat the grass and so, and. It, Eventually, it comes back to Huxley, Mozart, Mozart, a reprise on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. You know, I, I find myself leaning more and more toward animism. It's the most despised of the uh, so-called religions, and I say so-called because religion is kind of a dodgy uh, category itself, but it's most despised because it's not monotheistic. He doesn't have some head man. doesn't have some chief. You know, diffuses agency and perhaps even consciousness among many, many parts of the world. So we can start a church, Louis. First Pantheist Church. <laughs> I, we'd probably have to have it outdoors, though, don't you think? <laughs> well, possibly. <laughs> But my dad, who was or in there. a hollow tree, maybe. Right? <laughs> you come to the end of of, of the, this really engaging book. I've I found this book a delight to read because it brings up so many ideas that I hadn't even dreamed of in, in my philosophy. So, but the, do you want to say something about the end of of your book, where you 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 give us your your way? Uh, 
of of uh, confronting death. I mean, I, I'm looking at the paragraph that says, author eats pretty much what she wants, indulges vices and butter, you know, butter and wine. Do <laughs> uh, you, you remember any of that? Uh, I, yeah, I have enough sufficient memory left to remember that. Yes, I mean, um, my own idea is that I do things, one, that I like to do, and that means eating foods I like to eat, uh, having not only wine, but the um, occasional vodka tonic, etc. And I refuse, oh, big thing, I butter bread. I have been in so many situations where somebody has chided me for buttering bread. Well, what is bread for but to carry the butter to your mouth? So, I, you know, I do things that are known or thought by my contemporaries to be unhealthy. And I also do things that I think are important to do, uh, you know, politically important, socially important. And I don't have time for this other stuff, sitting around in doctor's waiting rooms or curating every, everything I eat. I don't. Too much else to do. All right. Well, I'm glad for that because among the other things to do is, is writing this book, which I think is a brilliant book. So thank you, Barbara, for speaking with us today about your new book, Natural Causes. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.